What does God think about LGBTQ? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us. We pray that you'd lead us and guide us according to your word. We pray that we would understand and obey the difficult things of your word. Help us to do this in our time and place, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The young man was excited at the prospect of looking sophisticated and trendy as he asked the pastor the question that he'd rehearsed numerous times in his head. So, Reverend, what do you think about homosexuality? The pastor looked at the young man with a serious and yet at the same time perplexed look and answered, what do I think about homosexuality? It really doesn't matter what I think about homosexuality, but what matters is what God thinks about homosexuality. This morning, we'll look at this subject, this very serious and timely subject, as we consider God's thoughts on homosexuality. God's thoughts on homosexuality. So first of all, we're going to look at God's original intention for men and women. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin there in verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And it says there, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now man was alone with nature at this point in time. It was man and the created order. And he's naming the animals. Perhaps he didn't fully sense that he was missing something. Now as God's creating the world, each day he looks upon what he's created and he says something. He proclaims something over it. Six times God saw what he had made and he said it was tov, good. It was good. It was good. And then on the sixth day, God saw that it was tov meod. It was very good. The fullness of what he's created has come together. And at the apex of this is a human being. Man is the image of God. And it's the apex of the created order. And so God says, now it's all tov meod. It's very good. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation of the world and the cosmos. But when we get to chapter 2, we see a reiteration of that. And then the story goes on. And here we see that God says, it is not good. It is not lo tov, that a man should be alone. God determined the best helper for him. And the word helper fit for him here is etzer kenegdo. Etzer kenegdo. It means a helper corresponded to him. In fact, if we want to put it a little bit more colloquially, we might say this. The counterpart of his being. The counterpart of his being. Not alone is he to be, nor an exact replication, but a corresponding replication. She will supply what is needed. She will supply what is missing. Going on to verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Man was not made to be a loner. Now, I know we got some people in here that are from uh, Alaska, and there's all these shows, you know, about guys living in cabins out by themselves. And, you know, if that's their life, and they feel called to that, but the idea that man is supposed to be a loner out in the wilderness with the bears and the eagles, 
The idea of the nature boy is a deficiency according to the scripture. In all creation, there was no etzer konegdo found for Adam. The parts must correspond and fit. The hardware must mesh. The software must correspond and fill in the gaps. And so, a helper fitting for him must be found. Going on to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And we look at this and say, a rib, how is that possible? Well, man was created from the afar, the dust of the earth. So how hard is it for God to shape that DNA material and make a new being out of it? The woman was created from the man's side, and all humans have come from women ever since. The woman is the other side, as it were, of what the man has lost. Going on to verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Only the woman is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And there's some similar correspondence when it goes the other way. Only the man fits that for the woman. A man shall leave a man and a woman united in marriage. Do you see that there? A man shall leave his father and his mother. A man shall leave a man and a woman united in marriage and hold fast to his woman in a new marriage, a new kingdom, as it were. If you've ever been to an Orthodox wedding, they place crowns upon the husband and wife's head as they're going through the ceremony, symbolizing not only that a new marriage is forming, but a new kingdom is forming, and that perhaps thousands of generations will come forth from them. They shall become, according to our text, one flesh because they complete each other. That part taken from the man's side is returned, as it were. A woman completes a man and vice versa. On a physical level, on a psychological level, on a spiritual level. And men and women are very different. Though we're the same as human beings, you may notice that we're very different. Any of you who've been married for any length of time know how different the opposite sex is. Our culture tries to act like men and women are exactly the same. Well, friends, we live at a time and place where our culture is filled with foolish voices and it's filled with fools who act like experts. This relationship between a man and a woman completes and matures us, completes and matures us. Same-sex relationships keep you a child. Hey, kids, listen up. When a man and a woman marry each other, they become more mature. They grow. They learn things they could never have learned from a book or through simple observation. Men and women are very different in some sense. If you take the lens out really far, you say, well, human beings are all the same. But when you take it in close, you see how different we are. You will never mature to fullness without marrying the opposite sex. By seeking to please 
your spouse, by observing your spouse and learning about them. You learn more about the triune God who is one and many, and in marriage, there's one marriage and there's a man and a woman. The same sex relationship is like looking at the mirror at yourself. You'll never mature into the fullness that you could without marriage. There is no shame in this relationship before God. Notice that they're naked and they're unashamed. And by the way, they're not supposed to stay that way. We shouldn't look at this and say, that's how everybody should be. We should live on a nude beach. No. Creation starts with people unclothed. They're big, giant infants, as it were, but as they mature, and we look at the end of the story, we see in the book of Revelation that people are clothed in glorious robes. But in this relationship between the man and the woman, there's no shame. A married man and woman before God, and it is good. All right, God's original intention for men and women. Let's go on now, and let's take a look at the Old Testament view of homosexuality. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Leviticus 20, verse 13. And it says there, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. The Old Testament condemns homosexual acts. The very center of our desire as humans is to procreate. And so that's wrapped up in sexuality. As a capital punishment here, we see that this is an abomination. An abomination. The word abomination there in the Hebrew means detestable and loathsome. The center of marriage is love, which creates new human beings. And friends, this is why I want to encourage you. Even you young people here, one day you're going to get married. And you're probably going to have an impulse that comes from the culture to have a really cool wedding. And maybe you want to have all the people in your, your bridesmaids and the the guests of honor, the men who are accompanying them, the groomsmen, you want to have them dance down the middle of the aisle and play some weird song and have bubbles blowing all over the place and change the right, the wording of the right. I want to encourage you not to do that. The church has upheld that right for centuries and millennia. And the first portion of that traditional right says that marriage is for procreation that the very basic thing about us as being married is to have children. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If men and women don't get married and don't have children, the human race will not continue. But for us as Christians, even more than that, little Christians are coming into the world. And so we see that the center of marriage and love creates new humans. Homosexuality mimics and inverts God's creation. You may have noticed that in the Oberfeld decision that what it described as marriage is two persons together in some sort of an emotional relationship. But the Bible says that marriage is between a man and a woman for procreation, for companionship, so on and so forth. But at the top of that is the creation of new human beings. Love in the Bible is not simply untethered feelings or lusts. It is ordered godly commitment. So let me ask you this. Is there anything about the Old Testament's view on homosexuality that is unclear? I don't think so. Let's go on to the New Testament. The New Testament view of homosexuality. Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 27. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, what's going on here in Romans chapter 1 is this. 
It traces the human race. And rather than, as archaeologists would have us believe, that originally people started out believing in thousands of gods and then they became more sophisticated and narrowed down to one god, rather the Bible tells us that there was one god and people wandered further and further from him and the farther they wandered from him, the more gods they created and the more idols they created. And as they went further on this path of idolatry, this happens in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans 1 traces the trajectory of humanity from God to paganism, and homosexuality is at the end of the spectrum. Homosexuality was always common amongst the pagans. We see that here in Romans chapter 1 and verses 21 through 23. Homosexuality is not simply a sin, but rather is the result of rejecting God's ways and his word. And why do I bring this up? Because I submit to you, that that, along with the whole spectrum of LGBTQ, is the great heresy of our times. You see, it slides under the surface and we act like it's simply some sociological problem that's outside the church, but it invades the church. And it's very rude, it seeks to invert the created order. In reality, is a heresy that is invading our culture and our churches. So you hear the culture say to you, and you kids that are getting ready to go off into college, you'll hear this all the time. Hey, man, it's 2022. Get with the times, hater. But what if we're living in a really, really bent generation? What if we're living in a really dark time and we don't see it because we're ingesting the culture smog? The only way to understand things and to see clearly is with the light of the word of God and not to be afraid of the haters on the outside of the church, but to stand firm upon the word of God with a posture of love toward the culture. Did Abraham spend his time worrying about what the culture, exemplified by Sodom and Gomorrah, thought about him? Or was he more concerned about following God? and doing what was right, even though he was a tiny speck in the midst of a sea of pagans. So I've got a question for you. Ponder this in your mind. Is the New Testament pretty clear about what it says about homosexuality? A lot of people will say, well, there's only a couple verses on it. Do we need tons of verses on every little thing? So now let's take a look at Jesus' intention for men and women. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus reiterates here what God said and did at the beginning in Genesis, sanctifying what is revealed on the subject of homosexuality. Now, here's a couple questions that I'd like to seek to answer for you. Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality, right? You hear that all the time? Well, I never heard Jesus say anything about that. Well, this is actually heretical since Jesus, as the second person of the triune God, is the author of all Scripture, Old and New Testament. 
Jesus is the word. Jesus speaks forth the word, and all of the word points toward the coming of the Christ and his exaltation. By the way, Jesus never said anything about child sex trafficking, or he never said anything about serial killers either. Does that mean those things are indifferent things? Second question, how should I relate toward LGBTQ and LGBTQ persons? And the answer is this, the same as you would these other sinners. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. By the way, those are two words there. That's for the man who acts like the man in the relationship. And that's for the man who takes the place of the woman in the relationship. Verse 10. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God have you known people like that? Have you perhaps been that person? So as other sinners, we're to seek them to see repentance and to come know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do no one any favors by trying to downplay what the word of God says about these things. Continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And the whole point of it is this. Our lives are so short. Our time in this age is so short. This age in which you live and the days in which you live in it are your quest. And eternity is going to be founded on what you do now. And so just because something is hard, and I get it, we all have our crosses to bear, we all have our sins to bear, but just because something is hard and difficult doesn't mean it's not something that we are to do. Our lives are to be lives of difficulty, of trial, of joy, in victories in Christ. And so we should encourage one another and those who struggle with this sin to press on toward Christ in this short life that we might rejoice together in eternity and look back and see how short but how important it was. So why not try what God established as truly blessed? Full flourishing, marriage between one man and one woman. And kids, let me tell you, marriage is great, it is awesome. Marriage between a man and a woman, the creation of family, will lift you to heights that you never dreamed of, will make you do things, awesome things, ordinary but extraordinary at the same time that you would never be able to do on your own, that you would never be able to achieve in a same-sex relationship. I remember a time before Starbucks, before Pete's Coffee, before Coffee Bean, there was a styrofoam cup coffee vending machine in the college cafeteria. I'd belly up and deposit my quarter because I needed the caffeine for my studies that that cup of horrific swill would provide. There was little pleasure. There was little wonder at the complexity of the flavors. There was little joy. But then coffee culture burst onto the scene, and everything changed. Marital disorder was the rule in the ancient pagan world. Polygamy was common. Pedophilia was normalized. Divorce was routine. Homosexuality was prevalent. Marriage was flavorless, but Jesus' reassertion of marriage between one man and one woman 
but the pleasure of God's order and wonder at the complexity of the flavor of a relationship that brings together a man and a woman and makes them joyfully one flesh so that the human race continues. This morning, we've seen God's thoughts on homosexuality. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless us with courage and wisdom to walk in the days in which we live, days in which darkness around sexuality is pressing in at all sides upon the kingdom and pressing in even to the church. May we stand firm upon your truth the generations after us may look back upon our sagas and rejoice in your provision. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.